double edge. So you're telling me that you want Kevin, the turkey stuffed animal, to be a special guest tonight? Yeah. Why? He's my friend. No, okay, so you're telling me that a stuffed animal, that's a turkey, will be able to help us with a podcast. You know, you're really going to hurt his feelings you calling them stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because turkeys are... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> phone oh okay Test me. <laughs> hello and welcome back to fine wine and evil spirits a husband and wife podcast where we talk about the weird and spooky while sipping on booze um and we're also talking about real life boogeymen boogeymen or boogie women not what like men picking their nose no not boogie? like no <laughs> stop it <laughs> tonight we Tonight we're taking our imaginary plane to West Virginia. Because even if we wanted to get on a plane, we couldn't because we're still in quarantine. Yep, quarantine. And I just want to say, for the record, that today is the first day since March 13th that I've stepped out of the apartment. Yeah. So how was it? Well, (laughs) (laughs) well, how long of a walk did we take? It's pretty like 20 minutes. At least. Half an hour, 20 No, it was a little bit long. It had to have been longer than that. No, it was about that time. Because we were going to go around for another, like, round. Yep, and somebody tired out. Weston. Yep. My legs are tired. <laughs> Got some um, crazy hills up here. So. But then, like, Kevin was trying to talk to everyone and their grandson while we were out so i got angry no i got angry at you because people are people you gotta say hi no well i'm i know make eye contact with somebody and you're within like range so this is the thing is that you don't make eye contact you don't look at people you you make rude yes that's not raised like that no you be rude and you look uninviting and then they don't want to talk to you and you don't want to talk to them that's not my dna well, that's how you should be. Mm. Mm. To be determined. No. So, um, yeah, and then the FedEx guy, you're like harassing the FedEx guy. Did you deliver my he packages? He put my package in the wrong building. Well, he probably doesn't want to go in people's buildings. Or he just, eh, he may not got lost. It's pretty. Where did he put it? On the other side. Oh. Yep. Well, the buildings are confusing. But I feel like if you're a delivery person, then... He probably goes to different ones. And, uh, he seemed I'm nice. I'm going to throw him a bone. He seemed nice. Oh, and I want to say something on the records that way you don't get upset with me. So I, um, when we ordered food earlier, mm-hmm. I gave a little bit too much of a tip. Okay. You don't even want to ask how much? Nope. <laughs> okay. Well, I figure, you know, with everything going on... It would be nice for the person getting an extra tip. You know what I mean? Like an extra. Yeah. An extra $20. You know? Damn. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I only did 10 <laughs> But still. I mean, like, usually when we order, That's we give, like, big. what? Six? Yeah. So Five I to figured, seven. Something like that. Yeah. I figure, because, like, you know, everybody's going through a lot right now. And um, I know that, we, mm. you know, we can't donate to everything or we can't. Really, it really depends on 
how much something is, and then say like, what fifteen percent, twenty percent, right? Whatever. So the, the bill is. was forty dollars. So I just gave fifty. So yes, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's I figure good. it was decent. And you know what? They always do like a super good job. Yeah. Um. They, I very rarely mess up our order. Um. And the people are always super nice. Warrington Pizza, by the way. How nice again? Super nice. Like cape and stuff. Yeah, like super, <laughs> like Aquaman nice. Oh, what's that guy's name again? Jason Momoa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's... He's super nice. Why couldn't Aquaman be, you know, this cool when I was a kid? Like, Aquaman, Thor, like, all of them are, like, cool. You know why? When I was a kid, it wasn't cool. It was, like, Spider-Man, Batman, that was it. But you know why? Why? Crooked letter. No. Because now they're extremely attractive, and that's what makes them so cool. Because they got big old muscles? Yeah. Oh, which reminds me, I want to watch Aquaman. <laughs> Not because of the muscles. No, he, he's a hell of an actor. I mean... Oh, I know. All right, now she's like dreaming here. <laughs> Stop it. Okay, so <laughs> to prepare for tonight's episode... Is that what the podcast... Are they called episodes? Episodes? Uh, yeah, they have to be called episodes. Yeah. Okay, so... Or per- series. No. Yeah, episode. Yeah. Series. Well, we only... We don't have... I should ask Siri what the answer is. No, don't ask Siri. I hate when you ask Siri. Um, every five seconds, Siri, how do you uh, open a can? I don't know how to do anything without Siri anymore. I know. It's so annoying. <laughs> like, hey, Siri, how do I do this? Like, oh, yeah, just do this and this. Here, here's the link. I'm like, oh, great. I kind of feel like I'm like being cheated on. By Siri? Well, by you with Siri. Well, listen... Siri and me are serious. We're just friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, to prepare for the podcast tonight, we watched a couple of movies. We watched Wrong Turn, and I was basically IMDb for Kevin because he re- he recognized the actors, but he had no idea. Who Dude, I'm so bad with that. I don't even know anybody. So, your thoughts on that movie, though? Because can, we haven't watched it for a while. The messed up part about actors and all that stuff is, like, I can identify football players, right? Because I, I follow Which I them. don't know how, because for me, they all look the same because they're always wearing helmets. Well, so I like, mean, you watch them during, <clears throat> like, uh, training camp and, like, when they're coming into the league, like, you can... I don't know. It's That comes easy to me, right? But actors and stuff, it's... They all look the same. They, <laughs> I don't know what's they the literally with me. all look the same to you. <laughs> like you'll be like, oh, uh, oh, when I asked you earlier, I got blank syndrome. You know, I just go, who the heck is that? Like when I asked you earlier, I said, oh, last week uh, you didn't know who Chris Hemsworth is, and you're like, I, yeah, still, I still don't know, know. who that is. Who's that? <laughs> I still don't know. But then I say, oh, he's Thor. Oh, that was awkward. Oh, yeah, oof. yeah. Oh my God, Kevin, come yeah. on. I do we like literally him. Literally, just talked about this. Yeah. yeah. He's okay, Chris Hemsworth. And it's not even because he's attractive, but, like, he's, like, so attractive that it, it hurts. Like, he it literally is a god. And I'm sorry yeah. because you're my husband and I shouldn't be, like, talking about yeah. another man like this. But I was... Oh, he's Thor. Chris Thor is a god. No, but, like, I was staring at... A is picture. Aquaman a god? Yes. Yeah. I Who guess would've... so. Like, a god of... Well, he's a demigod, right? Because I think he's... De- half... He's a demigod. Demi. I Demi? Think he... Yes, it's half God, half human, mm. I think. So he can be killed, though, because gods can't be killed. Listen, can I finish? Now I forget what I was saying. Chris Hemsworth is absolutely, like, a perfect man. And it's not even because, like, he's so attractive. <laughs> and I'm sorry again for saying it's this. It's about 80%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. But, I mean, 
if you see him interviewed, he's just like such a nice guy. And I know that that can all be a ruse, but... I, I don't think so. No? You don't think so? Yeah. I think he's, like, legitimately... Like, he has... You can tell when somebody's faking it. He ha- He was, I um... I, I've seen him interviewed. I don't think he's faking it. You've seen him interviewed? Yeah. So, he, I saw him interviewed, um... I, the, I don't want, though. Maybe yeah. something you showed me. So, I had him, like... Sh- I saw him interviewed the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how, how everybody's doing, like, interviews on, like, remote interviews on Zoom and stuff? Yeah. So, he was doing one, and... His kid kept popping in. And mm. if it was me, oh you would my see my face. And you would see, like, she is pissed. <laughs> like, this kid won't stop. Like, and I've been on meetings with my children because we did the remote bring your kid to work time. And I'm pretty sure people saw how annoyed I was getting of Weston. Um, but he kept it totally cool, totally calm. Like, he just seems like such a good dad, and he just seems so nice. And we all lose our shit sometimes. And yeah. I, you know what I mean? But. Belongs in ashtrays. Butts belong in ashtrays. But. Belong in ashtrays. I don't know. I just think he's, like, one of those, like, super superior guys. Not again <laughs> to, like, put you down or anything. You ain't got nothing on me, man. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just. He's not human. He's Thor. He's literally too good to be true. Yeah, I guess he is Thor. Back to West Virginia. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) we were watching Wrong Turn, and there is a common misconception about, like, the hillbillies in West Virginia. So we're not trying to, like, connect the two. But I really love that movie. And it's not because it's, like, set in West Virginia. The first one has to be the best one, in my opinion. And here's another thing. A lot thing. of people I recognize, but I don't know who they are. But like, Well, names. also, they were very, like, popular when it came out. Mm. Those actors. But, like, th- I mean, there's two... No, there was... Yeah, two of them mm-hmm. that I know their faces very well, but I still don't know their The one was from Buffy, right? Yeah, Eliza Dushku, I think her name is. What'd you call me? No. Stop it. <laughs> Just call me a douche day. Like, All right, and- yeah, I got it. <laughs> um, Cracking jokes. But I just, I don't know if it's because when I saw that movie for the first time, like, it was just like, you know, it was with people that I liked being around, or Mm -hmm. if I just, like, enjoy it. But I do really just enjoy it. I don't know. I probably could watch it again. Really? And that guy at the gas station, how dare him have that map on there like that? Well, like we discussed before. You know, one tooth? Uh, At least I was going on Did he have one tooth? He had one tooth. Was it really just one? Are you sure? Okay, so anyway. I'm pretty sure. I think he did that, so that way, like I said, if he got people to go in their direction, then they would leave him alone. Because if people just traveled on the regular road, then nobody would go that way, and then they wouldn't cross paths with anybody, even though they could, you know, move somewhere else and make it happen. But anyway, I love that movie. Um, and then we also watched the Mothman prophecies. I still don't get it. I don't know what you don't get about it, though. Everything. I Like, the more I think about it... Alright, explain it to me. Because I still... My mind is like... Poof. So the Mothman... And we had him in a different episode, so I'm not really mm. going to like go too into it. But he... 
I don't know if he, like, how he really comes to people, but he, like, prophesizes bad things that are going to happen. And he's kind of like the middleman, where it's like, don't shoot the messenger, but really people are like, fucking Mothman is coming, and bad shit's going to happen. So, like, he will come to people to kind of, like, say that they're going to die or say that something bad's going to happen, and then bad shit happens. Yeah, as far as the movie, I, I did like the movie. Um, yeah. What, would, what kind of movie would you call it? Like More of a, like a suspense type thing? Or? I don't know. I guess like a thriller. A thriller. Or Michael a, Jackson thriller. I don't know if I would definitely <laughs> classify it as horror because I, don't, I wouldn't call it like, oh my god, that's scary. But it's right. kind of like... More of the thought, right? It's like kind of the like, psychological like, aspect of it. Like a Final Destination thing? But, yeah. Oh my god. The now bridge I'm, at the end? Like, ooh. Now I want to watch Final Destination. So, back to Virginia. Oh, yeah. And also, that bridge thing. You wonder why I freak out about bridges all the time. I'm sure it stems more than that movie. But mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons. Like, think about that. That's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. You can't move. You can't get away. You gotta be really, really fast. Like, Roadrunner fast. And I know for a fact that you would pick up one of the kids before you picked up me. And then I would be left by myself. Well, you gotta pick up kids, you gotta knock on everybody's window, tell them to run, get off the bridge. There's a lot of work to do. Like, every time... Oh, remember that one time we were coming back from the beach, and we were going, like, the the Palmyra, is that how you say it? Palmyra Bridge? And it was so backed up. (laughs) I was terrified to be out on the actual bridge when it was, like, backed up. Was it shut down? Like, what was going on? I forget. Oh, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, we had to go on a different bridge. It was right before. Turn around. It was right before Kevin's surgery, I think. You had to go on the other bridge. It was like. We went through the back roads, and it looked like we were going to get murdered. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. All right. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> our first story is the Flatwoods monster in West Virginia. Flatwood. Yeah, flats. Flat. Wait, no, Flatwoods. Woods? Yeah, because it was in Flatwoods, Virginia. So imagine, um, close your eyes. Imagine playing football with your friends after school. You're living your best life. When out of nowhere, an object right that... Right the big A-gap. I'm trying to paint a picture. I know, I was still, I was playing football. Going through the A-gap. Okay, anyway. When out of nowhere, <clears throat> an object appears. And it looks like fire falling from the sky. Oh, shit. Yeah. I don't like that picture. Okay, so that's exactly what happened on September 12th, 1953. Mm-hmm. 52, sorry. 53. <clears throat> oh, 52. Can you not? I'm all clogged up. You need to stop being clogged because it's disruptive. I'm sorry. You're disrupting the class. I did that a lot. So the boys that were playing football along mm-hmm. with two adults went to investigate they were surprised by the stench of rotten eggs that was burning their eyes. Were, did you fart there? How, how did I get there? <laughs> Even though my farts probably could burn your eyes. <laughs> they have. Yep. Um, so in their peripheral vision, they saw someone. Peripheral? Peripheral. Peripheral? Per- Stop trying to say words, okay? <laughs> I'm actually doing well tonight. Can yeah. you not mess me up? All right, yeah. In their peripheral vision, they saw something come out of the woods. They shined their flashlight in the direction of the movement. There was a 10-foot monster. 
It was levitating off the ground and spewed smoke and gas. The head was red with a prominent point at the top and it had glowing eyes. The arms were gangly and instead of hands, gangly. it had claws. We already discussed this in last week's episode where the troll had gangly arms. It's like wiry and long and just like thin. Like Gumby? Yes, like so Gumby. got this Gumby thing coming at you. <laughs> with claws. That's claw. And then... Good thing I'm faster than you, right? <laughs> shut up. Yeah, but you don't know. I'll break your kneecap. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Not no more, right? I've been um, practicing hopping on one foot. I'll break both kneecaps. Dang, that's will, harsh. I will feed you to the Flatwoods monster. <laughs> um, it almost seemed reptilian because it had like, like green, I guess, skin, but it looked like armor. So it was like mm. kind of like scaly looking. Right. Um, as it was floating, it began to shriek. Is this Miley? Shriek? Shriek. Yeah. I don't like, think I ever heard that word. Shriek? Like I You heard... haven't heard that word before? Shriek? Like you've shrieking? Definitely, you've definitely heard of shrieking before. <laughs> Shri- oh, shri- oh, okay. okay yeah, yeah. Like, no. Maybe it's a little too much to drink. Shriek? What do you mean by that? <laughs> um, so it scared off the group, and they ran off and went to the police. But when the police came back, the creature was gone, and all that le- was left was the smell. Are you sure this wasn't you? May one because sometimes I shriek. Um, <laughs> Does it hurt? You shriek. I shriek. When do you shriek? Now and then. Now and then. That's a great movie. More then than now, but. No, do you know that movie? Oh, yeah. No, the four girls in the summer. And the and one the, is like a tomboy. It's and then in the 70s. The pair, the, Knock three times. I may know. I don't forget. And then there's a drifter, and then they're solving drifter. Yeah, from the war, and then they're solving the um, the murder of dear Johnny, and they go into the grandmom's uh, attic. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I remember. Kind of, but yeah. All right, where were we? Another. Reason- I only can watch movies like once, and I'm just like done. I know. Unless it's, it's like so ten years boring. later. I was watching the three ninjas earlier, man. It was it was awesome. All right, let's get back to the story. So, another resource says that there was a black, oily substance found in all the clothes of those who had been to inv- th- like there to investigate. Over the following weeks, those within that group became ill, and they believed that it was from like whatever the monster in- like emitted to them. They had an irritation of the skin and throat, paired with convulsions and vomiting. The police searched the area the next day as well, and more of the black, oily substance was found on the ground and in the trees. Or on the trees, not in. Uh, Many of the group claimed to have symptoms their whole lives and were even diagnosed with throat or lung cancer. Kathleen Mays was one of the uh, ones who encountered the monster, and she believed to have died from throat cancer. So right here is what they they said it looked like. You know what that looks like? What? A jellyfish. A jellyfish. How does like that a really messed up looking look jellyfish. Anything like a jellyfish. It looks like a jellyfish. What a dress on or something. <laughs> a jellyfish with a dress on. <laughs> jellyfish don't wear dress. They don't have the bone structure for this it. This one looks like it does. <laughs> no. Okay, so over the past 76, 67 years, not 76. You can't do numbers in I can't do numbers. <clears throat> the w- I can't. Now let me clear my throat. <laughs> Can you like it's really disturbing. Yeah, sorry. My yeah. boo. I've been getting words pretty well 
And then the, the numbers. numbers I keep Woo. messing up tonight. I'll do the numbers. You do the word. No. I don't trust you. There have been a number of sightings since that day, but one sighting stands out, and it was made the same night in 1952 by two other <laughs> witnesses. What are you, my echo? The, ni- the next day, September 13th, there was a young couple and their baby who were traveling near the area, and their car went completely dead. The man got out of the car to look at the engine, but said that there was nothing wrong. Then he saw a glowing light in the woods. Like an idiot, he walked towards it and started to feel a low-voltage electric charge move through his body. And then he smelled the sulfur odor and saw the creature floating in a tube-like device and moving closer to him. Unlike the others, he said that the creature was seven to nine feet and circled the car, touching the hood with two fingers and burning the paint. Now I'm wondering, is it two fingers on one hand? Or is it two fingers on two hands? Or maybe the thing was just using two fingers. From what hand? His left hand. I don't know. His right hand. But that's hand. what I'm saying. Is it two fingers from one hand? Or is it two fingers from one finger from each hand? Well, the way I take that what is... What if it only had bu- one bu- hand bu- 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 Hold on a second. Hold on. So when somebody says it like that, I think if they're using one hand and just two fingers from that hand. Okay. All right. So we'll right? just go with that. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing in my mind yeah. now. Swizzy. No. Swizzy. <laughs> this particular area is known for having large deposits of coal and natural gas, which may explain everything altogether. They could have been hallucinations and the ongoing health issues um, could have been like a result of that. Or it could have altogether been mistaken identity because, you know, they hallucinated. In addition, right. on the same night in September 1952, there was a meteor shower that could be seen throughout three states, which included West Virginia, as well as three flashing red aircraft beacons that were also seen. Though the first documented sighting was in 1952, Native Americans from West Virginia had been, had similar descriptions since the 1500s of flying men and electrical charges with balls of light. Go ahead, laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. What color? <laughs> Red, obviously. <laughs> Both cryptozoologists and UFOologists have researched the sightings extensively, but no one can make a definite determination of what they could have been. Maybe it was something extraterrestrial or a hybrid humanoid. Maybe it was a creature that in the heat of the moment they misidentified. Hmm. To this day, in Flatwoods, Braxton County, the town has an annual celebration over three days of the Green Monster Festival, where they I want to ha- go to that. I don't. Where they have live music, and the, the local museum gives tours to the site where the group first spotted the Flatwoods monster. The sightings have not stopped, and while the description does not change, sometimes people say that the creatures do not have the oddly shaped hood and assume it was apparel of some sort. There are differences, though, such as the the eyes being another color. That's awesome. I definitely want to go to that. I don't want to go to that. Why? Because I'm scared. Okay, first of all, even if it's just, oh, it's just the natural gas. 
you're exposing yourself to this toxic gas. You'll be alright. Listen, just because it says natural doesn't mean that it's actually good for you. Okay. So, the next two stories are kind of long. And I've taken a long time to, you know, write them. Yep, you are. So I'm kind of very like. Good at writing. Well, I'm kind of excited about them. And also a little bit like, you know, passionate and nervous. All right. So, the Green Briar Ghost. The Green Briar Ghost. Really? I figure I'll try it. If this story doesn't convince you that females are the dominant sex, I don't know what will. I'm just gonna start off with that. Because and wow. you will yeah. <laughs> and you will see why. <laughs> so Zona Hester knew little of the world outside of her Greenbrier County. It was a mountainous place that was isolated from the busy nature of the surrounding areas. Because of that seclusion it was also a place where everyone knew everything, and if you strayed from the quote-unquote norm, you were ostracized. 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 Ooh, my first, when, like... When I, when I think of ostracized, I think of ostriches. I don't know why. Me neither. You, they're fast and they're mean. They're the fastest two, two, two-legged bird, Weston told me. Yeah, they fast. Don't Weston run. Weston goes facts. <laughs> Um, in 1895, Zona gave birth to a child out of wedlock, which was a huge no-no during that time, obviously. Mm. I mean, it was a huge no-no until, I mean, sometimes it still is, depending on, like, the family. Um. Religious police, family. Yeah. But because of her mother, Mary Ann Hester, um, and her reputation, there was still hope something good could come out of her life. Because, you know, back then it was all, like, a respectable woman. You know? So, I wonder who she had a baby with. Was it the love of her life? Or was it just someone passing by that she happened to meet? I guess you'll have to keep reading. But I didn't find any information on that. Okay. Anyway, a year later, Estratus Stribbling Shoe. That's a guy's name, for real. Hold on, what? Yeah, Stratus Stribbling Shoe. Stribbling. That's a terrible, like, what is that? What kind your of, middle name is Stribbling. I don't know if it's his middle name or, like, a double last name. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but anyway, luckily. <laughs> that was the first time I ever heard that. No, no, no. Just... Luckily, he liked to go by the name Trout. Trout. Yes. Nice. Which is much easier than... All of that. Right. Um, He strolled into the next town over and started working as a local blacksmith in a shop that was owned by James Crookshanks. Like a fairy tale, Trout seemingly swept Zona off of her feet, accepting her in ways that the town members could not. Maybe it was because he wasn't perfect himself either. He had two failed marriages, one from divorce and the other in which his wife had passed. He also had a daughter from his first marriage, but I couldn't find any information on how he, like, you know, saw the daughter. She was born in Greenbrier, though, so, you know, maybe he did see her, but uh, it, it, it didn't say anything because this took place in, like, 19, 1895. Really? Can you stop making faces? You're distracting me. 
Um, in my search to see if he had any kids, I went to a link for Zona and her child wasn't even mentioned, which I found was like kind of weird. Um, and then this is Zona and this is Trout. What are, what are your first impressions of them? I mean, they look like a good couple together, right? They seem like... Yeah. Not, there was nothing I like, like that weird. little like hair thing he got going on. I don't on. know if he meant to have the hair just falling on the... On that the was the style back then. Was it? I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. I don't actually know. <laughs> <laughs> it was 1895. I think they liked everything in place. Um, where Zona had fallen head over heels, her mother Mary Ann did not feel the same way about Trout. In fact, she thought that he was the devil and refused to give them her blessing for their wedding. Yeah, they got married anyway. Um, Around three months after they were wed, Zona became very sick, and Dr. George Knapp would frequent the house to take care of her. The illness, however, was not disclosed, and somewhat of a mystery. However, as any small town talks, yeah, people believe that she was pregnant again, and this pregnancy was a difficult one. Trout seemed to be an exceptional exceptional husband, taking care of her and even asking Martha Jones, uh, I think she was like a neighbor, if her son Anderson could go by the house and do some chores so Zona didn't have to. That sounds really nice, actually. You never send anybody over to do chores for me. Um, At the time, Anderson was busy, but he promised that he would eventually go over there. And this was after much begging from Trout. I can't, like, say that name without, like, saying it like that. Because I keep thinking of fish. Like, the Trout. The the fish. Um, So he made Anderson promise that he would go over to the house that afternoon to check on his wife and do some chores. So, it was after lunch when Anderson had finally gone to the shoe residence, but when he knocked, no one answered. Hmm. Aware that Zona had been sick and remembering how adamant Trout was that he went to the house, Anderson let himself inside. It was quiet as he wandered through the house, and he didn't find Zona until he reached the bedroom and found her dead body stretched out on the floor her feet together, and a hand over her stomach. He ran out of the house and back home to his mother, who instructed him to go to Crookshank's shop, where Trout worked, and let him know what was going on. Anderson was then told by Trout to go find Dr. Knapp, who was both a doctor and a coroner, while Trout ran home. This poor kid is, like, literally running all over the place. This is crazy. I can't even believe what's going on here. Um. Yeah, I can't believe that, uh, what was he, like, the messenger? Like, what, what would we call the police a, or the, the well, ambulance? They can't, well, it's 1895. Yeah, I never realized that. I said, said anyone. <laughs> why didn't but, you just text them? <laughs> yeah, why didn't you just text them? Like, what's the matter with you guys? <laughs> um, Dr. Knapp arrived at the house where he found Trout in a room with a, a deceased Zona. He was holding her head and weeping. So, the next part for me is, like, kind of kind of strange um it says that when the doctor came in trout has changed his wife's dress and then the the doctor checked her for signs of life so he changed her dress why would he do that and then the doctor checked her for signs of life why would you touch yeah so um and then also on another site it was said that she was found like at the bed like at the end of the bed but then 
on another site, it says that she was found on the bottom of the stairs. So I don't know exactly where she was With found. her clothes changed. Well, let me get to that part. So either way, she winds up in her bedroom on her bed with her clothes changed that Trout picked out. Um, which for the time period, besides the weirdness of him moving her body and all that, um, the women within the community generally cleaned the body and then prepared the dress and clothes for funeral. So he had done that himself. Hmm. Um, Trout took it upon himself to find her finest clothing, which was a dress with a high neck and stiff collar, which covered her neck entirely, and a veil was placed over her face. Also, around her neck was her favorite scarf, which didn't match the dress at all, but Trout insisted that she wear it, wore it. When the doctor pronounced her death official, he examined the body as much as Trout would allow, which wasn't much because um, he just kept holding onto her body. Like, he wouldn't really let him, the doctor, look over the body. Uh, the Dr. Knapp determined that she had died from an everlasting faint, which, which seemed to make sense because she had been ill. I don't exactly know what an everlasting faint was. I guess, like, just, like, falling asleep and, like, never waking up. Um, I think this guy's hiding something. Who? Trout? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just really weird. <clears throat> it's just weird. So, while grieving the death of a loved one, especially a spouse, um, you know, everybody reacts differently but trout's behavior at the funeral was a little over the top he refused to let anyone come close to her even as they gave their final goodbyes and he refused to leave their side her side he stated he was trying to keep her comfortable when he cradled her head and held a pillow to the side of her face it was weird but people assumed it was because of his grief um she was buried in the graveyard associated with Sule or Soul, I don't know how to pronounce that, Methodist Church under an unmarked grave. And they didn't, like, they didn't. Unmarked? Why would you unmark? Yeah, they did not put a name to the grave until 1979. So this is almost 100 years later. So the body could be moved. Well, the body wasn't moved, but it's just saying that, you know, it was an unmarked grave until 1979. Um, weird. Mary Ann, Zona's mother, held nothing back when she was informed of her daughter's death. She was absolutely 100% convinced that Trout had murdered her. When she was at the funeral, she took the sheet that once held her daughter. She took it home, and she washed it. And when she did, the water in the basin became red, and the stench of death invaded her nose. But then the smell vanished, and the water was clear. Mary Ann could have waved it off as her imagination, but the cloth had somehow turned pink. Thoughts? Sounds like blood. Yeah, but there was no blood on it until she washed it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like some OJ stuff. <laughs> <laughs> For four weeks, she prayed and begged that Zona would come and let her know her side of the story, what happened. The true story, not the trout story. <laughs> Get I like it? that. Yeah. yeah. And one night, Mary Ann noticed a white light in, on a dark night with no moon in sight, but then it faded. The next night, Zona came out to Mary Ann. Oh, came to Mary Ann. Fully formed flesh and blood, cold to the touch. So she wasn't coming as like an apparition or anything. She was like full body, 
and her mom could touch her, even though she's dead. Three more nights, Zona would come and tell Marianne exactly what happened. And this is what the site said. On the night that her body had been discovered, her husband had come home and fell into a rage when he saw that she hadn't cooked any meat to go with supper. The specter went on to tell her mother that her husband in a blind rage overpowered her and closed his fingers around her throat. Such was his fury that Trout hadn't merely choked his wife to death. Instead, his iron-strong grip had mashed her windpipe, ruptured and tearing ligaments before finally breaking her neck, snapping it between the first and second vertebrae. After relating this tale as a seemingly reanimated corpse of her murdered daughter made her way towards the door and away from her mother for the last time, Zona turned her head towards Mary Jane, completely around on her body to show that her neck had indeed been shattered. So the ghost went to the door and her body stayed facing forward and then her head went all the way back. Like the exorcist. <laughs> don't say that. Don't, shh, shh, shh. <clears throat> don't say the Don't say her name. Shh. Don't say it. Now knowing the truth, Marianne went to the county prosecutor named John Alfred Preston, who I'm, I'll call him JP from now on. JP? Just because it's easier. And demanded that he reopen the case and explain that what Zona had told her. Because of the other suspicions throughout the community... JP decided to speak with Dr. Knapp, who also admitted that Zona's death did not sit well with him. He also admitted that Trout's grief had made it difficult to give a full examination of the body. Because of the new information, JP decided to take the case. Any thoughts? Have you been listening? Of course. No, you haven't. I don't think you have. Um, JP ordered that the body was exhumed during the time, um, like in West Virginia, that was not done like ever because it was considered like a sin and like only bad things would happen. Um, but a month after her death, her body was dug up and taken to Nichols schoolhouse to be examined. Trout joined in with neighbors to dig up Zona's body while supervised by law enforcement, Dr. Knapp and JP. After three hours of digging, Zona's cause of death seemed obvious. She was murdered, and Trout was locked away and held without bail for first-degree murder of the woman he was supposed to love. So, this all happened in February, her body being dug up and everything. But it wasn't until June that Judge McWhorter... Hoarder? McWhorter. Hoarder, yeah. Yeah, because whore is spelled that way. Yeah, Hoarder. Minus the chur. Um came for the trial during the wait jp continued to build his case against trout with the help of his assistant henry gilmer they found out that trout's first wife had filed for divorce because he was abusive and earlier i mentioned that he had a wife that had died before Mm -hmm. um that's what i was saying too probably killed her yeah there wasn't much information but i did find that she died under mysterious circumstances Trout hired the first black attorney to practice in the Greenbrier court, Dr. William Rucker. The murderer, I'm calling him the murderer now because obviously he did it. (laughs) The murderer kept being positive and as a result was a disgusting human being. Um, 
he kept telling his cellmate that he would be out in no time and that he would marry seven more times. Mm. Who is that, like, ambitious that you want to go around marrying people seven times, seven different wives? Like, that's got to be expensive to have, like, that many weddings. Yeah. Even in that time. Even if it's just a walk down the backyard. Um, so, June 30th, the trial began. JP kept with the facts that caused suspicion that caused suspicions from the witnesses, um, which included how, how Dr. Knapp hadn't been able to properly examine the body and how Trout clothed Zona in a high neck dress when the body should have been washed and dressed by the women in the community and how there was a scarf that didn't make sense because it didn't match with the dress and it was ridiculous. It was hiding her neck, I guess. How Trout didn't let anyone go near the body, you know, because he, like, kept, like, propping her head up. Right. And then how his grief seemed to be cured after the funeral. Uh, the defense countered that the entire investigation was brought on because Mary Ann um, was seeing ghosts, basically. And they wanted to make a mockery of her. They put her on the stand to make everyone see just how crazy she was. But that only made JP's case stronger because they ripped into her and she remained calm and composed like a woman. Um, it took one hour for the jury to decide that Trout was guilty and he was sentenced to life in prison. Furious, people in the town mo- um, formed a mob ready to lynch Trout because they wanted to kill him instead of having him in the prison. But the deputy shut that shit down and four of those men faced um, charges for attempted murder on shoe. Honestly, who cares at this point? He killed Zona, and he obviously probably had something to do with the murder of his second wife. And he would have killed his first wife if she hasn't divorced his ass. Yeah, pretty much. Shu was assigned to West Virginia State Prison in Moundsville, but he only lasted there for three years because there was an, a pandemic that spread through the area. Mm. Which is something else that I wanted Pandemics. to talk about. I know, because we're facing one right now. And do you understand how many people are dying in prisons? Like, it's insane. And, you know, like, I know that, you know, if you do the crime, you do the time. But A, not everybody in prison has done the crime. Mm -hmm. And then B, a lot of the times it's a petty crime. Something stupid. You know what I mean? Just kind of like one of those wrong place, wrong times. And... I don't know. It just sucks. Because there's literally, like, nothing we can do. Alright. So, we're gonna take a break right now. (laughs) Because we both drank too much. And we have to use the restroom. If we're stupid, we can make this a lot smoother. So, our last story is the Sodder children. And, again, I'm warning, this is a long one. And I put a lot of, um, a lot of effort into this one. Because, I mean, not that I don't put a lot of effort into the other ones. But, um, I really got kind of sucked into. Got involved. Like, yeah, I got, like, sucked into this one. Um. It's a good story here. It, yeah. It's, it's messed up. 
So, tragic stories of children grip the attention of everyone. But what if I told you that in 1945, five children completely vanished from a house fire? They vanished from a house fire? Yeah. How do you vanish from a house fire? Well, let's dive in. Although they met in America, George and Jenny Sauter both immigrated from Italy. In 1923, their first child out of 10 was born, and George's business was booming, and they were becoming known and respected throughout the town. Everything seemed great, but George did not keep his opinions to himself, because freedom of speech and everything in, you know, America. And he was known for opposing the viewpoints of others in the immigrant community, specifically his distaste for Benito Mussolini, an Italian dictator. Uh, some arguments became so heated that they resulted in death threats, not death threats, sorry, <laughs> just threats to George and his family. Um, there was no clear understanding of why like, he was so against the dictator, aside from being, being a dictator. A dictator. <laughs> um, That's probably why. But uh, George never really spoke about his background like while he lived like in Italy. Um, so maybe there was something there that made him, you know... I don't know, maybe something happened that triggered his really big distaste for him. Uh, So in 1943, the last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born, and Joe, the second oldest, left home to fight in the military during World War II. One year later, Mussolini was executed, and those who George squabbled with about the leader did not forget his words or how he felt about it in fact some people were extremely unhappy with him which is ridiculous because it's not like he's the one that killed him you know um regardless when politics are involved things can get a little nutty apparently in october 1945 there was a traveling salesman who threatened george saying that the solder house would go up in smoke and his children would be harmed because of his negative attitude towards the dictator Wow. Right? Uh, There was another man who was looking for work, and he circled the house for some unknown reason and cautioned the possibility of a fire, stating that fuse boxes would be the culprit. This confused George because he had recently rewired the entire house because of an electric stove that was added into the kitchen. So it's like, why would you, you know, say that? Right. I just got this shit done. Um... But verbal threats and warnings were not the only strange incidents that led up to Christmas of that year. The Sodders' older sons had noticed a strange car that had been parked out in the open on the main highway within the town. The individuals in the car seemed to follow the activities of the Sodder children while they came home, like walked home from school in the afternoon for weeks. They didn't tell their parents about that? I don't know if they, like so I tried looking it up but because this was like so long ago it's kind of blur blah mm-hmm. blurred um no one talks about it but that's like one of my things like if so Kevin and Miley were walking home one day right and they thought that this one guy was following them mm-hmm. and they called me right away so like I told them you know go down <clears throat> a street, mm-hmm. yeah. And then the guy wasn't following them. But for weeks, watching you, like, <laughs> I don't know. 
Um, so then we fast forward to Christmas Eve. It was Christmas Eve. Um, it was 10 o'clock at night. The children were excited for the next day. And um, the oldest daughter, Marion, had brought home toys for the kids. So they wanted to play with them, obviously, because kids get excited. Um, they begged their mother to stay up, like the, our children always do. And I always shut them down with a solid no. Yeah, like, um, But Jenny was nicer than me. And she caved. Uh, but she took the littlest, who was Sylvia, down uh, upstairs with her. She was two at the time. George, uh, her husband, and the two older boys, John, who was 23 at the time, and George Jr., who was 16, they were already asleep, exhausted from working all day. At 12.30, and you have to remember, this is 1945, mm -hmm. the phone rang, which is weird. That is weird, yeah. Um... Jenny went downstairs. She took the phone from the receiver. She heard a woman asking for a name that she had no idea. Like, she had never heard it before or obviously didn't live in the house. Um, in the background of the other line, there was a clinking of glasses and laughter. Jenny told the woman that she dialed the wrong number and hung up. Going back to bed, she noticed that the children had left the lights on and the curtains were still open in the living room downstairs. Marion, the oldest daughter, was asleep on the couch but she was the only one downstairs, and while she shut off the lights and drew the curtains, she figured that the others had gone up to the attic to go to bed, because that's where their room was. Um, Jenny went back to bed. She noticed that, oh, <laughs> rereading the same sentence. Jenny fell back asleep, but then she was awakened again at 1 o'clock in the morning. So this is a half hour later um, from the, the phone call. Uh, to the sound of a loud bang, and then a roll. An hour later. You said the phone rang at 12.30. So and then she woke up at 1. 1.30. No, she woke up at 1. Uh, uh. Yeah. To the sound of a loud bang and then a rolling noise on the roof of the house. Mm. She dismissed it and fell back asleep. I would not be able to dismiss that shit. I'd be like, Kevin, go outside. <laughs> Look at what's going on. Um, report back to me. <laughs> and, re and report back. I will, I will call the police. Um... So by the by, one thirty, Jenny was up and she would not be going back to sleep because she smelled smoke. That's got to be like the worst feeling ever to wake up in the middle of the night and smell smoke, because it's like you're tired, you just woke up, and like your senses are all like confuffled, discombobulated. Discombobulated. Um, so she like she got out of bed and she went to investigate. She found her husband's office was up in flames. Hmm. Uh, frantically, she woke up her husband, and then he went out, woke up the other, like the two older boys. The four of them, along with Sylvia and Marianne, escaped the house because the stairway was completely engulfed. Uh, they couldn't even try to get up the stairs uh, to get the other kids in the attic. They yelled from outside uh, for the other five children, but no one came out. Wow. Yeah. That's like insane, man. Like. Who so, the hell does that? Well, we don't know yet. Marion ran to the neighbor's house to call the fire department. At the same time, a driver was passing by and noticed the scene and went to a nearby tavern. Uh, it's not clear whether the fire department heard from Marion or the neighbor, like from the neighbor's house, or the passerby first. While waiting, it seemed like nothing would go right. They were they couldn't find the ladder that they would normally use to get to the attic. Um, it wasn't in its usual place. 
the water in the barrel that could have been used to like try to throw out the flames was frozen solid. Um, and then they thought about using the two trucks belonging to the family and pulling them together and use that to climb up or whatever, but neither would start. And then George even tried climbing up the side of the house, but he was barefoot and um, he broke the window, but cut his arm in the process. So like he was, he couldn't really do anything. It took 45 minutes for the house to burn. And the only thing the family could do was stand there and watch. Wow. Um, at this point, you might be wondering why the fire department had not come, uh, which is a valid thought. But because of the war, they had very little men. Um, they had very little resources. And at that time, the firefighters would have to call each other individually. So, like, I would call you, and then you would call the next person, and then that person would call the next person. Because right. they couldn't just leave their house. They couldn't just take their phones and leave like we can. Right. Um, and then Chief Morris also couldn't drive the truck. Uh, he was not able to drive the truck. And he had to wait for somebody to come and get it. Uh, I'm not sure what time the firefighters finally came, but it did say like later that morning. Since there was a time lapse, I'm assuming that the family just watched the house burn until it collapsed. Because by 10 o'clock in the morning the firefighters finished digging through the ashes with one conclusion. There were no bones. So either their bodies had been completely incinerated or there were no bones that the children had never been there. Because hmm. so, like, think back when she had gone down, the lights were still on and the curtains weren't drawn, which was something that the children always did. So that's weird, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I just wanted to throw out some facts. The temperature of cremation is 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit or over. Now, depending on the woods or other materials of the house, the temperature fluctuates. But from what I read, it doesn't seem like it would necessarily, like, reach that degree to be able to cremate the bones like that. Right. Um, Because it did burn for a long time, so it's not a matter of, like, how long it burned. But, um, well, actually 45 minutes isn't that long. Because that's what, like, they said that the house burned for 45 minutes. Um, even if the bodies were burned to the point where there were no bones, only ashes, there would still be, like, some kind of fragments that were left behind. Um, some kind of evidence that somebody died in the fire. Or they were kidnapped or lured outside to be kidnapped. Because you have to think, if they were, if, if they never turn off the lights downstairs and the curtains were still like open somebody could have came inside and when the fire happened they're not wondering if the door is locked or not they're just trying to get out so it's not like they really like properly thought about oh is this door locked is this door you know what i mean right yeah um so modern professionals oh wait so there's conflicting stories of the findings some say that there was absolutely nothing but ash uh, while others say that there were bone fa- fragments and internal organs were found. But the family wasn't privy to that information because Chief Morris absolutely believed that children were inside and he didn't want to tell the parents like that they found their like intestines and stuff. Um, he thought that the temperatures were high enough to leave no evidence behind, which I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. 
Uh, Modern professionals revisited the case. They say that the investigation was superficial at best. So they did not, like, do a very good job because they didn't really have the resources. They Mm. weren't trained um, that well to be able to do that. Um, And then even though Morris thought that the children had died in the fire, he told George to leave the site alone. And um, because the state marshal's office would come back to conduct conduct a more thorough in examination of the property. Um, days passed. They still didn't come. And the Sutter parents couldn't take the sight of it any longer. Um, you know, like, they're coming from a different country. They have these dreams. They just, like, they're all about family. And then they lose five of their children. You know, they don't want to look at that anymore. They don't want to even to be reminded of it. Um so George t- took a bulldozer and covered the area with five feet of dirt. Um, he and Jenny had plans to make it a memorial site for the children. The day after George started making the memorial, an inquest was held. For you know those who don't know, an inquest is a formal legal investigation. There is a judge, a jury, and sometimes a coroner. In this case, all three were present, and none of the and one of the jury members included the traveling salesman who had threatened George that his house would burn and his children would be harmed. He probably did. He had to have something to do with it, right? Like, he yeah. had to. And, like, was the town really that small that they had to have him, like, there? And, you know, he's a traveling salesman. So where is he traveling from? Was he, did he Was he even a community member? You know? Right. Uh, so the coroner stated that the cause of the fire was faulty wiring. So, if we think about the threat of the salesman, and then we think about the guys watching the house, and then we think about the ladder that was not there when it was supposed to be, and then the ladder, like, it had a normal spot. The family obviously knows where they put it, right? This was set up. Um... And then, like, I, so I have some other questions. If Jenny, and I'm not trying to, like, blame Jenny, because obviously, like, she, I would never, like, for a mother, like, right. I would never be like, this is your fault. And especially when, I mean, it's different if it, you, you think that the person's actually to blame. But right. I don't know. So I feel like I'm calling her out, but these are, like, genuine questions that I was thinking of. If she was used to the curtains being closed and the lights off, like, I would have gone maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I would have been too tired. But I would think to go up to the attic to see if the kids were there. You know, just, like, to check on them. Like, just everybody's good. Everybody's asleep. Um, If the kids were so excited to stay up, wouldn't they have fallen asleep with Marion downstairs? Like, that's, like, my my main thing. Like, wouldn't they have just passed out downstairs with their older sister? If they were so excited to stay up? Um, and then why hadn't anybody told the cops about the threat from the salesman or the man, the men watching the kids? Right? Like, why were police not involved before this? Um. I thought not of it. Maybe. I guess you can't really do anything if there's no, like, exact. But I feel like the salesman was an exact threat. Like, I feel like that was a legitimate threat. Hindsight tells you that, but I mean. Yeah, true. At the time, you're just thinking, oh, he's just. And I know, like, I hear a lot of, like, things at night that I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is, and then I'm too lazy to get up. But, like, the bump on the roof is one thing. But then hearing it, like, roll, like, I would be kind of like, what is that? You know, hearing it roll. 
Yeah. I mean, unless they were used to something like that happened, like they had squirrels or something, and then they had like a tree where things like would fall and then kind of roll off. I don't know. Back then, they weren't even thinking stuff like that. I would have been on high alert, dude. Especially after that phone call. Yeah. I would have been like a mess. You know me. Um... So throughout this whole thing, there's conflicting remarks from the media. In one story, they were saying that the children died in the fire. And then in the other stories, uh, you know, like only one part of the body was discovered. One part on one body was discovered. Um, regardless, George and Jenny did not bring themselves. They, they couldn't go to the funeral. Like they just, they just couldn't. Uh, the remaining children did go. It didn't take long for the Sodder family to start thinking about the inconsistencies of everything. Were you going to say something? How many children were there? Well, there was five that died in the fire. There were four that got out. So, ten altogether, because the one was in the war. Ten children? Yeah. I mean, this was normal. This is 1945. Oh, My grandma had eight. That's true. Um, so, it didn't take long for the Sauter family to start thinking about all the inconsistencies. Um, if it was an electrical wiring issue, why were the lights in the house still working? They would have been, like, the first thing to go out. Uh, when they finally did find the ladder, it was 75 a week. 75 a week. 75 a week? <laughs> 75 feet away from an embankment. How did it even get there? Yeah, somebody put it there. Um, which is another thing. Like, if you are going to use the attic, like, the ladder to get to the attic... How do you have time to run over to an embankment to put the the ladder down? Right. So that's confusing. And this brings me to another thing. I said I don't think that anybody ever went into the attic. I think that the children were taken from downstairs. That's because, what I think, too. They came in, they kidnapped them. Because why, like, if the children ever went upstairs, why would they not turn off the light and close the curtains? They could have forgot. I don't know, because they... they, It's unlikely. The way that they made it seem was that they always did it. Like, because they specifically, like, in the the sources that I read, they specifically note that, hey, like, this is weird. Like, the kids didn't do this, and Jenny had to. Mm -hmm. All right, so the phone wire had not been burned through. It had been cut. Cut by someone who climbed 14 feet up a pole and had to reach two feet away from the pole to cut it. Um, with this one, there was an eyewitness who saw a man stealing a block and tackle from the home um, around the time of the fire. The man was identified, arrested, and of course let go after admitting to cut the phone, cutting the phone line and the theft. Like, they just let him go. He had actually thought it, that it was a power line. You know, well, I meant to cut the power line. <laughs> like, and Jenny, like... You don't think he did that? Like, Well, Jenny later reflects... Um, on this admission saying that if they had cut the power line like none of them would have been alive because it would have been like probably so hard to get out of the house like without any kind of like lights or anything Um, and then remember remember the time we saw our neighbor smashing the window to their house to get in and you're like just mind your own business just mind your own business and I'm like sitting there like no what if she's gonna hurt him (laughs) And the one I called the police on. And yeah, I made you call the police. So like, (laughs) this is what I'm talking about. If you see something, say something. Because this woman saw the guy 
robbing the freaking house. And I think she, I was yelling at her too, right? Like, hey, what are you doing? Well, you weren't really yelling at her. You were kind of being nice. But like, what if she had a gun? What if she shot at you? Yeah, I would dodge it. Anyway. So Jenny did not I'm believe. Quick like that. Meh. Jenny did not believe that the children's bodies could have been destroyed in the fire. Some of the appliances were still recognizable. Mm. Um, she went on a hunt, collecting and comparing information from other house fires in the area, and skeleton skeletal remains were present. Mm. So, not to say that this like fire was not as bad as the other ones, or I mean, worse than the other ones, but there's just a lot of inconsistencies. Oh, and the woman that called giggling. The police tr- wound up tracking her down, and she said it really was just a missed call. I call bullshit on that. I really call, like, it's just too many coincidences. Um, they were also expla- able to explain the thud and roll that Jenny heard at 1 a.m. A bus driver... <sighs> this infuriates my soul. A bus driver had seen people throwing what he described as balls of fire at the house on Christmas Eve. Why was nobody notified of this? That's so weird. I know that it's a different time and that they didn't have cell phones, so the bus driver couldn't just, like, pick up a phone and say, Hey, Popo, like, I just saw this. But how? 1 a.m., 1 a.m., right? So the bus was driving around at 1 a.m. The bus driver saw this happening. You're telling me in a half hour you can't stop somewhere to tell somebody something? Well, he has a job that has different routes. Oh, okay. So I hope that if a bus driver ever sees somebody throwing fire at my house, that they just, you know, leave a route. Well, no, they would just use their cell phone. It's different, Kevin. So after the snow had melted, little Sylvia, who was probably like three or turning three, found a ball-like object in the yard. George said that it looked like some kind of hand grenade. This led the theory that the fire may have started on the roof. You don't say. You don't say. Um, then there was a woman who had said that she saw the fire. She'd also seen the children from the window of a passing car staring at the blaze. Another woman claimed to have been eating breakfast at a rest stop when she saw them in a car um, and the car that they were in had a Florida license plate. This one, it's not really her fault because like she probably didn't know until after the fact, until like the pictures were seen. Um, but it, off, it, it baffles me how quick people are to like donate to causes, right? They're like, oh habitat for uh cockroaches anonymous and they're like here take my five dollars but nobody wants to like give information on something when they see something exactly so this case gets even more crazy they hire a private investigator cc tinsley um, he was the one who found out about the traveling salesman who threatened George being on, like, the jury. He also found out that Chief Morris, who initially stated that there were no remains, had confined with a local minister, confessing that he found a heart in the fire. He put it in a box, and he buried it without telling anyone. Hmm. 
while he was lying about that, they dug, oh, they got Morris to dig up the box. They took it to a funeral director, and he determined that it was a cow liver and it had no exposure to the fire. Why? (laughs) Why? He said that he wanted to have something to prove that the children died in the fire so the family could rest. Now, he wanted to prove to the family that something was found in the fire, but he buried it and didn't tell anybody except for a local minister. Are what? they allowed to do that? They what? To just... what? First of all, I didn't know a minister could actually go and, and actually tell. and tell people what you I don't tell think them. that they're supposed to. Yeah, like, what the? What? Like, you can't do that. I guess, that. like, if you feel like, oh. It should be like, ain't that like doctor patient? Confidentiality. Yeah, but just like being a minister type thing. Like I don't even know. I guess like if you feel like you're doing something for the greater. Then what's good. the point of confessing anything to some like to admit to that person if they're just gonna do that? Well, that's not even the point. The point is that he said, more the uh, the chief said, you know, yeah, I found proof that there was somebody in there. But he didn't tell anybody. He's like, oh, I was trying to make No, I know that, but I'm just saying, as far as it being confidential... No, I understand that. How does he get to do that? But I'm saying that Morris said that the reason why he did that was because he wanted the family to feel like some kind of closure. Like, that they did die in the fire. But he didn't tell anybody. So how would the family even... Like, that's just weird. Like, this is so weird. Um... As with any case, you know, people are calling in and saying that they saw the children. Um, but strangers weren't the only ones looking for the ghosts of these children. J- uh, George Sauter, the dad, saw a picture of a girl in a magazine featuring young ballet dancers in New York City. The girl resem- resembled his daughter Betty, and he left West Virginia to go to drive up to New York to the school and demanded to see this girl. What? Yeah. The school denied, so he never got to see her. Um, George even tried to get FBI interest in the family's case by writing multiple letters and even got a response from J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover empathized with the man, um, stating that he would help if he could, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments would not agree to ask for the Bureau's assistance, so he couldn't do anything unless the um, local authorities requested it from the FBI basically mm-hmm. uh, which they just refused to do uh, so it was in August of 1949 when a pathologist from Washington D.C. came to search the dirt from the garden again he found a dictionary and pieces of human vertebrae so like the backbones um, but the vertebrae was believed to have come from a 16 or 17 year old, which did not match any of the children who were missing. The oldest had been Maurice, uh, who was 14 at the time. Also, the bone had not been damaged by any kind of fire. They were wondering, like, how it came there. Like, how could it possibly have gotten on the land? Um, it actually came from a cemetery in Mount Hope. Mount which Hope. They, they don't even know. It was like five hours away. They still don't know how it got there. Um, yeah. <laughs> fucking five miles away. Or five hours away. Um, 
national attention was brought to the case, but after only two years, it went cold uh, for law enforcement, but the Sodders never gave up. They even offered $5,000, which, you know, in 1945 or 1949, yeah, still a lot of money uh, for a reward. And then it doubled. So it went up to $10,000 because the family was hoping for any kind of information that would let them know what happened to their kids. Later in 1952, a billboard was put up on the side of the house, and then there was an additional billboard that was put up on U.S. Route 60 with information about the children and mention of the reward. So I'm sure that they got, like, a bunch of people calling in, but nothing ever really, you know. And out. So uh, the billboard sparked claims, and the children were seen... Uh, oh, that the that the children were seen from somebody, including one from Ida Crutchfield, who oversaw a hotel in Charleston. Uh, she said that she saw him a week after the fire. She couldn't recall the exact date, but the children had come into the hotel with two men and two women, all of which she believed were of Italian descent. Ida tried talking to the children, but one man had said something in Italian. And everyone stopped talking to her, stopped talking to her like completely. Everybody just shut up. And every time I see Italian, like I always want to say Italian. I don't know why. Hmm. <laughs> um, because the incident happened five years before, law enforcement like weren't really convinced that her memory was credible. Because how can you, you know, like human memory is not good enough to begin with. Well, I'm they they listened to her, you know. Probably um, barely listened to her. Like, yeah, yeah, but we'll get around to it. But what, honestly, what could they do? Look into it. She didn't know the people. It's not like she knew the people. Um, George continued to follow with leads in person, taking the investigation into his own hands. Some additional sightings included a woman in St. Louis said Martha had been... She was being held in a covenant. In a covenant? What's like, that? I guess like a nun? I don't mm. know. I don't know if she was a nun or if she was just like there. Um, a bar patron in Texas overheard a conversation between two people talking about the events of a fire in West Virginia that took place on Christmas Eve, but that didn't pan out either. And then there was even a tip that one of Jenny's relatives in Florida, the mom... Um, had children who resembled the Sodder children. George forced them to prove that the children were not his. So I don't know, like, I guess they took a DNA test or something, but he made them show that they were actually, like, their kids and not George's. Um, In 1967, they seemed to get a lead that gave them hope. A woman in Houston claimed that Louis Sodder, or Louis, would you say, like, that... Lewis. Lewis? Okay. Um, Disclosed his identity while under the influence. The woman was convinced that he and his brother Maurice were both in Texas. When George went there to investigate with his uh, son-in-law Grover Paxton, who was actually the littlest solder child, her husband, um, the woman wasn't available to talk. However, law enforcement found the men and they both denied being George's sons. Um, Paxton, uh, the son-in-law, said that George always believed that they were his sons. But why wouldn't they be like, yeah, 
we are your sons and then be a happy family again um in the same year so 1967 jenny was checking the mail and received a picture with a sealed envelope oh inside a sealed envelope addressed only to her it was postmarked central kentucky central city kentucky and the picture was of a grown man with writing on the back that said lewis Sauter, i love brother frankie i l i l boys i don't know what that means and then the number is A90132 or 355, which I also don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand. Does that make any sense to you? It's not a zip code. Um, the family hired another PI who went to Kentucky, but the private investor investigator never came back. Like what? he was never seen from again. So just uh, probably wasn't even a private investigator. You think? Probably like a scam. Maybe. Yeah, look, don't worry. Uh, the picture was added to the billboard. So this picture right here. That was yeah. supposed to be Lewis. Um, it was added to the billboard and an enlargement was made that they hung over the fireplace. So they don't even know if it's him. But they enlarged the picture and hung it over the fireplace. Um, I, want, I wonder if they could get any kind of racial, like facial recognition from the two pictures like from when he was little to now like how probable like nowadays yeah like how probable is it that it was him you know maybe they could nowadays probably maybe i don't know um so despite hitting many dead ends the Sutter family refused to give up family lines were so important to them um especially i think um being like coming from a different country like having that real solid like family relationship is so important um because you're kind of really the only people like in that family like you know the rest of the family is in italy like they they have no connection to anybody else they're making their own connections right now um but like experiencing something so horrific like i don't think i would have been able to sit around either like, I think I would need to keep... It would become an obsession. Like, obviously, right. with George, it did. Yes, yeah, um, But, like, I think there's a fine line between wanting to find out the truth and then also making it your life. Because you can't be stuck in that moment. I mean, I know that you, like, you want to find them and you want them to be safe. But... If they're not, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, it's such a hard thing. And I think that you really can only figure that out if you're in that situation. Um, but, yeah, that's that's hard. I think I would, like, I, I honestly think that I would find out, like, I would go insane. And I would be, I like, depressed. Would. And, I mean, five kids. Like, that's insane. Um, so, even after George died, the rest of the surviving family didn't stop looking for signs uh, the only one who was trying to move forward was John, who I, th- I think he was the second oldest boy. Um, he refused to say anything about that night. Uh, for her remaining years, Jenny spent time having a fence built around the house. Uh, she got additional rooms added on for who knows what. And she wore black to mourn the children as she tended the garden of her former house. Uh, when she died in eight- 1989, the billboard was finally taken down. So it was on for a good, like, 
a long ass time. Um, so, you know, again, as mentioned before, like the 40 family. 40 years, right? Over 40 years. Yeah. It's just insane. Like, I think just not knowing yeah. what happened is just like so. It's infuriating and it's also depressing at the same time. Like, you want to be angry about it, but you're also so, so sad about it. I mean, I get, like, upset when, like, somebody lies to me. Like, when the kids lie to me about, like, not doing something. Mm -hmm. And, like, I don't know who did it. But I know that somebody did it. Right. You know what I mean? Um, Silly thing to, like, compare it to. But that's exactly, like, what it was. Um, Even, you know, even after both of the parents died... The, the kids and then the kids' kids right there. were still looking. Like, that's mm. just so upsetting. Um, I honestly hope that they made it out and I hope that, you know, they got to live a life um, even if it was away from their parents. Like, at least I hope that they were safe. Right. I don't know. It's just same here. so sad. What do you think happened? Do you think that they died in the fire? I thought, well, I think um, they were kidnapped and then probably brainwashed. Yeah. The oldest was 14, I think they said. So he might have been a little bit harder to brainwash, but I mean, it's little ones, it's easier. But I guess like if they were taking care of the little ones, they would kind of do whatever it took to keep them safe. Yeah. Um, it's just sad. That was heavy. I feel like I need to watch something like funny now. Yeah. Watch an episode of Friends. <laughs> yeah. No, they took that off Netflix. <gasps> I know. How rude. We could watch Dale and Tucker versus Evil. Do you remember that movie? Mm, not really. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's the bottom of the bottle. As always, if you like our podcast, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Fine Wine and Evil Spirits, and also on Twitter at FWES Podcast. Like and share our posts, and don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know in detail what you think about the show and what your favorite parts are. Remember, five stars are. We'll haunt you. No, okay, so what I'm saying is, is that, like, I understand that Pinky's actually the smarter one, because Brain just takes his ideas, right? And yeah. then he makes them sound smart. But Pinky was the one that already came out with it. I understand that. Yeah. So I'm the Brain, because I think I'm always right, and you're Pinky, because you actually have good ideas, but I'm the one that implements them. Oh, you're making me blush. <laughs>